Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. I am sorry that it didn't start on time. For some reason, the uh, blog talk side of things was not picking up. I ended up having to restart my computer, restart my router. I don't know if it was on my end or their end, but once again, I'm glad that we're here. Let me get a brandy added to the call, and uh, we'll get this party started. But any of you listeners are in my chat room uh, want to tell me, actually, um, can you guys hear me okay? Let's see if I can get a reaction out of that. Well, they're not responding yet, so I don't know if they can hear me or not. I'll have them refresh. Anyway, okay, good. That sounds like they can hear me. I apologize for the uh, technical difficulties. This doesn't generally happen. And uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to V-Radio. Tonight, we're going to be addressing a, um article that we found on the Mises Institute website. It was brought to my attention by Brandy Hume, who some of you who have listened to V-Radio in the past might remember as the person in charge of the Venus Project Challenge, uh, a YouTube pro- uh, campaign essentially to um, suggest to people that rather than just trolling the idea that they should actually formulate you know, real debate against it. So let me go ahead and add Brandy to this call. Oh, and um, obviously, uh, in case you, you know, if this is the first time you ever listened to V-Radio, uh, please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org, and uh, there you can find... Hello, Randy. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, actually, you sound great. Uh, okay. There you can find archives of my previous shows, uh, links to lots of great documentaries that you can watch for free, uh, my donation widget, although that is actually full right now. Thank you to everybody who supported me for this next month of V-Radio. And um, Brandy, it's great to have you with us again. Do me a favor and um, introduce yourself to our listeners while I turn this annoying fan off in my bedroom. <laughs> well, thank you very much. It's great to be back on the show. Um, hey, everybody. My name's Brandy. Um, I'm. You, some of you are familiar with me uh, from my Venus Project Challenge that I, I started on YouTube, which is um, you know kind of leaking elsewhere into Facebook, and there's a few other websites like Vimeo and stuff where I put the videos, and um, I think the main video pretty much just covers, you know, what this is about and trying to get everybody who's not familiar with the project to read through the material and um, and just kind of discuss it on a more mature level than I'm sure what a lot of you have experienced is going on, uh, particularly in the online community. But, um, but yeah, I think uh, there's about four videos now for the series, and hopefully I'll get around to putting the fifth one up soon, which is going to try to focus more on some things we can do to, um, to you know, move into a transitional phase for ourselves personally and start thinking, you know, in post-scarcity thinking and open source type ideas. So, Excellent. So that's me. All right. Well, um, the annoying fan is now off. My apologies, everyone. I was just kind of in a rush to get the show started, and I forgot to turn it off because of the technical problems we were having. Um, in any case, uh, I have the article here that you brought to my attention, um, and it's called, it's on the Ludwig von Mises Institute website, 
and their blog. I'm going to put the link in the chat room. And it's called... Dun, dun, dun. Venus needs some Austrians. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and start reading from that now, and uh, then we'll start the debunking process. From what I've seen so far, just from like having read it earlier, it's obvious that we have another person who didn't really understand what it is that we were doing. But um, anyway, so the author's name was Robert P. Murphy, and I'm going to start reading now. During my trip to Haiti, these are his words, by the way, I got into a discussion with my fellow volunteers about the financial crisis. Things were going quite well, as we all agreed that the rich investment bankers deserve no taxpayer bailout. However, my hopes were dashed when one of the more intellectual guys suddenly declared the problem was capitalism and a resource-based economy would relieve the world of scarcity. Apparently, this idea is catching on. Uh-oh. The reader emailed me. Sorry. A reader emailed me the grandiose description of the Venus Project. Although the people involved are admirably doing what they can do can to rid the world of injustice, they lack basic knowledge of economics. In the present article, I'll run over some of the biggest gaps in their proposal. The first thing I'm going to say, where to my like words now, um, is to once again remind everybody that despite the fact that Austrian economic, you know, economists have a tendency to pretend like their school is extremely well um, respected or chosen to be like the, the premier economic school. The reality is that most mainstream economists actually think that Austrian economics is silly. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. I've gotten into it in some of my previous shows, but it makes kind of an appeal to authority here to say that we lack, you know, the most basic knowledge of economics when the reality is that the majority of economists actually think that um, Mises and the Austrian types uh, actually are the ones who lack basic, you know, economic knowledge. There's so many different people from the 17th century or whatever who people still listen to ardently as though they were experts on something, as if they would have any way of comprehending what the economy would be like in a world with automation and 24-hour news and things of that nature. But let me go ahead and go back to this article. Now, it goes on to say the Venus Project. Um, it says, according to the website, the Venus Project is an organization that proposes a feasible plan of action for social change, one that works towards a peaceful and sustainable global civilization. It outlines an alternative to strive toward where human rights are no longer paper proclamation but as a way of life. We operate out of the 21.5-acre research center located in Venus, Florida. We're going to say resource-based economy. For our purposes in this article, the website section on a resource-based economy is much more interesting. And here's the quote from our uh, Venus Project website. The term and meaning of a resource-based economy was originated by Jacques Presco. It is a system in which all goods and services are available without the use of money, credits, barter, or any other system of debt or servitude. All resources became the common heritage of all the inhabitants, not just the select few. The premise upon which this system is based is that the Earth is abundant and plentiful resources. Our practice of rationing resources through monetary methods is irrelevant and counterproductive to our survival. Now, at the end of him quoting the Venus Project, let's get into his quotes. I am going to be quite critical of the resource-based economy in the remainder of this article, so I want to start off on a positive note. I don't believe that these thinkers are wrong in their visions of what life on Earth could be like. Their website is filled with beautiful visions of sea colonies and pollution-free technology, and I agree with them that the world could easily look like this in a few decades. 
However, these idealists are wrong to blame our current dysfunctional world on capitalism or money per se. On the contrary, if everyone respected each other's property rights, meaning there would, uh, meaning there would be no more petty crime, but also no more taxation, military conscription, or drug prohibition, then humanity would become fantastically wealthy in material terms. I give just a taste of it as a potential bounty in this other article he links. Um, in fact, in a truly free world in which billions of people grew up never knowing, uh, never knowing of theft, let alone of mass murder, the productivity of labor and corresponding standard of living could be so high that by our present standards, people could seem to be living in a post-scarcity condition. Now, of course, this technically wouldn't be true so long as the laws of physics were the same and so long as the human mind created ever more desires. But consider someone in our real world right now who goes from living on the streets in Calcutta to being adopted by a middle-class family in suburban America. <laughs> yeah, if they're lucky. Um, when this person goes with his new family into Costa or Sam's Club, Costco or Sam's Club, he enjoys the air conditioning that relieves him from the outside heat. If he has to go to the bathroom, he can do so. He can get a drink of water at the fountain, and then he can go through the store eating samples of delectable food. At the end, his adoptive parents might leave the store without having purchased anything. The former beggar from Calcutta would be astounded at all the free goods and services he just enjoyed, and he might understandably conclude that America is a land of abundance, whereas India is a land of want. All right, we're going to pause right there. The first thing I'm going to point out is that um, we're, let's go to the top here. He's like, um, see, okay, however these idealists are wrong to blame our current dysfunctional world in capitalism or money per se. On the contrary, if everyone respected each other's property rights, meaning there would be no more petty crime, but also no more taxation. So basically the premise here is, obviously we have an anarcho-capitalist who thinks that um, if we just, everybody just respected property rights, then everything would be okay. Right. You know, and that all crime will go away if everybody just respects property rights. What he's failing to understand is that in any situation where money, monetary exchange goes on, there are going to be inequities. In fact, there are going to be people on the bottom who are going to be lucky if they can find ways to see, you know, to make themselves important enough to other people in order to be able to even eat in the first place. So that being said, um, we run into a different problem which is that, um, by the way, can you hear me okay? I've been told I sound bad. I can hear you fine. That's weird. Okay. Anyway, um, I literally lost my train of thought. Okay. We've suggested, okay, here we go. There would be no more petty crime just because everybody would respect each other's property rights. So, in other words, if everybody just decided to respect everyone else's property rights, then everybody would be fine, and then somehow humanity would become fantastically wealthy in material terms, which doesn't I – don't, I don't understand how he thinks that's just going to happen, but I've heard that Libertopia stuff before. Yeah, essentially, um, well, there are other people saying I sound fine. Okay. Sorry about the constant interruptions, guys. Just trying to make sure you guys can hear me all right. Anyway, um, now, the point that I was getting at here is, is that um, – He's basically, that's the crux. He's suggesting that if we just all uh, respect everybody's property rights, regardless of our personal environments, then everybody would be fine and humanity would become fantastically wealthy. There's not really a point A to point B there. I mean, I understand. I know the, the dream that the, the free marketeers come up with, but I don't see it happening just because they say it does. 
there's a lot more to you know, between you know, like a, many many is a slip between the between the cup and a lip or something like that. You know, is the term for it. But basically, um, it all hinges on this notion that everybody's just going to agree to get along and respect everybody's property rights. But the whole point is that all crime is created through circumstances of scarcity. Circumstances of scarcity is what makes somebody determine that they need to steal to survive. Okay? It's, you know, and I can't just say, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm just going to starve to death. I mean, I don't want to disrespect anybody else's property rights. <laughs> you know, that's not going to fix the situation at all. So, you know, now let me go ahead and give you a moment to give some comments here on this. Um. Yeah, that's – it's actually I, – I got into that a little bit. I made some, some notes, and I think I'm probably going to put this in the form of a blog post later on just based on some of the things that we cover in the article or that he wrote because I, I want to make it clear to everybody, and I think that they will based on listening to the show, that it's not that – well, I can speak for myself. It's not that I'm here to debunk what they preach in general. It's that when I read an article like this that someone like he himself writes, I don't really care what he preaches in terms of what he believes and what they follow and Austrian economics and all of that. So, I mean, you can, you can dive in and say, well, you don't really understand it, so you can't debunk it. That's fine if you want to go that route, but I can stand up and say if I see something wrong and point it out when you think you understand the Venus Project, but you actually don't. And that's what we're doing here because after reading that article, it was clear that there were so many points that he was completely misconstruing about the Venus Project you know, just general points and specific points. So I think it's important that we point those out here specifically for people who don't really know much about the project and then are going to go read that article and think that it's accurate. And one of the first things on that point is uh, going back to when he says, you know, however these idealists are wrong to blame our current dysfunctional world on capitalism or money per se. And I think somebody even just said in, in the chat room a second ago in, in a word or two that it's not – we're not actually blaming capitalism or money. It's, I really like the way Douglas puts it best because he says money isn't bad, it's simply outdated. And what I mean by that is that it's, even if you could argue that the monetary system has gotten us to where we are today and capitalism isn't to blame for any of its downfalls, that's fine. But if we really want to put things into perspective, then let's say, okay, we're going to put the past in the past and look at what needs to be done moving forward. And we have the technology and the resources to automate nearly all labor, pretty much anything that's redundant and or dangerous, and we have the ability to produce enough food for the entire Earth's population about 12 times over, and we have the technology to develop clean, fast, safe, and efficient transportation for everybody. But we don't have enough money to pay for all of that. So money is basically in the way of what we can and need to accomplish at this stage. So even if you wanted to argue that money isn't the culprit for our current dysfunctional world, then we can go so far as to say that it's to blame for our future dysfunctional world because it's in the way of post-scarcity. And I think that that's where, you know, it, it's sort of like, I, I know you remember the video from um, the, the legal immigrant 05 that was kind of floating around for a while, and basically you could sum up this whole video as saying, Crap. There's enough stuff. <laughs> that too. He said the word crap a lot. I remember that. Like summing up in one sentence, he, he thinks that what we're saying is there's enough stuff in the world for everybody. So it's that simple. We can just get rid of money because there's enough stuff, and we just ignore division of labor. And that's not really what it is. I know that they're saying that there's the division of labor, and 
a value of a resource is not necessarily intrinsic, but it's more based on how it's used and that we as a society have the ability to choose how that resource is used based on our vote, i.e. our money, and we deem the product worthy of use for those resources. And in a totally free market, that would naturally lead to the most efficient use of resources possible. But, I mean, then you get into the question of how is this so-called free society that has no global inventory of the Earth's available natural resources, no overall understanding of the planetary functionality, and much less no ability to handle or calculate that amount of data, and no understanding of what the true meaning of the word efficiency means in relation to the planet, how can people be expected to make educated decisions in that context, or, or educated purchases in this case, which they're claiming is our right. decisions and our freedom of choice. Well, we're definitely going to get into that. I was just kind of dissecting one part at a time. Um, right. Now, it just, uh, as far as um, basically, you know, he, he says that, you know, we have great ideals, but we don't understand capitalism and money and all that other jazz. And now he moves on to say that, let me see here. We were talking about, you know, you said there would be no more petty crime just if we all just respected each other's property rights. And the, and the crux of my point was to say that the people don't respect each other's property rights in a circumstance of scarcity. And circumstances of scarcity are created by capitalism. They're going to say that, you know, they say, well, you shouldn't be blaming everything on capitalism. The next thing I would point out is that, you know, uh, I, I speak to the members of the Socialist Party and the Communist Party now who will tell you that I shouldn't be blaming the failures of other communists and socialists on that. And I understand where they're coming from, but it doesn't change the fact that one of the things that these systems have in common is that any system that utilizes money will inevitably find, a situa find itself in a situation where that money is you know, unequally distributed and where some people manipulate that money in order to make sure that they get more than everybody else. As long as that is even part of the approach, you're going to run into that situation. Mm -hmm. you know, so um, now... They will basically say, well, then it's not free market capitalism if that's happening. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And and uh, Paul Pot was a bad communist. And, uh, you know, obviously Adolf Hitler and his national socialists, well, they were they were bad examples of socialists. You know, <laughs> that they, you know we, we get all these arguments. And I, and I agree. I mean, I've, I've met some socialists that I get along with just fine. The, the point is, though, is that, you know, the, the systems themselves are all have money in them. And that eventually will inevitably lead to the same corruption. It's like one of the other things that they usually say is, well, if we could just fix, you know, the money system, we'll just get out of the Federal Reserve and we'll go to some kind of sound currency and then that'll fix everything. And then the next thing I say is, again, we're going to fix it again. Right. You know, this thing just breaks down over and over and over again. It's the only thing consistent about money is that it will be corrupted and that it will be abused, period. It happens over and over again. Right, yeah. and I, I just want to make a comment on that really quick because based, like, exa that's exactly what you said a second ago is how how do we get people to respect each other's property rights when they don't have equal access to property? It's like you said, if someone's starving, they're not just going to say, well, I can't steal any food or steal any money because I don't want to disrespect anybody's property rights. And then you have to ask, you know, if you argue that the free market supposedly is going to create this abundance, and equal access, then what would be the need for private property? Mm -hmm. If everyone has equal access to everything, which is what we're proposing. Right. You get you get out of the the need to have private property and move into more public property. It doesn't mean that you don't have access to things. It means that you try to focus the majority of the resources 
on things that could be utilized by everybody to, you know, improve everyone's standard of living. You know, rather than focusing on, well, we'll just let everybody kind of get in a rat race, and some people are going to start, you know, way ahead of others, and but it's the most fair way to just let them go on doing that, you know, um, it's the most fair way for us to just simply fight one another over everything because they believe there's not enough resources for everybody. So the best way is just to let us all, you know, fight each other over it in a capitalist system, wherein the more you win, the more you're going to win because it takes money to make money. Right. You know? And then they always create all these, oh, well, you can just start your own business. You know, the statistics are, are very much against you in starting your own business. It just doesn't work that way. The vast majority of businesses fail. Like, I think it was like 89%. I'd have to look up the exact, exact statistics. But, you know, I know that that's probably not correct, but I know it's a great deal of all businesses started fail. And particularly in a circumstance we have now wherein, you know, the, the people who are that, you know, the, you know, the head of the race are making sure to also manipulate the rest of the system to ensure that it's more difficult for other people to get in. And yeah, they say, well, that's not a free market. You know, our free market would get rid of that. I'm like, well, yeah, it would, but you're never going to get one because the people at the top enjoy exactly what they have, you know, and it's never going to happen that way. I mean, that's, this is another one of the – I'm going to bring this up because I always forget about it, but, like, when we had that one anarcho-capitalist on the show a long time ago, we had a good discussion, but one of the things I pointed out to them, because they're always telling us in the Venus Project they're scared of – of how we would implement this, they always assume we're going to come to their house with guns or whatever, because that's what national socialists did. That's what the, the Stalinist Russians did. But um, I usually kind of counter that by saying, so how are you going to enact your system? You're all about property rights. So then what happens? We just shut down all regulations of any kind. We turn off the Federal Reserve, and now we all have sound money. Okay, now what about all the people who had money before? Do they get to keep that amount of money? Well, if we're on a sound money currency system, what's going to happen to all the savings from people like Bill Gates, you know, the Ted Turners, et cetera, et cetera? Are they got, are they, is everybody just going to get the same amount of money? Are they going to be able to keep the property that they have? You know, this just, it's, once again, it just sounds like the only thing you're really going to do at this point is take away the few regulations that are left that actually do protect us, you know, and leave us with nothing. You know, in, in anarcho-capitalism, it's even more scary because in anarcho-capitalism, there's no state at all, so everybody is also responsible for their own security. If you want to protect yourself, you have to hire your own police or the equivalent thereof. You know, otherwise, you just don't get protected. And, if, you know, and the reason that this, this concept is so flawed is because if that means that whoever has the most money has the biggest security force. It's fascism to the highest bidder. So... In any case, let me, um, did you have something further, or otherwise I'm going to read on? No, you're fine. Go ahead. Now, let me see here. Um, in fact, in a truly free world in which billions of people grew up never knowing of theft, let alone of mass murder, the productivity of labor and corresponding standard living could be so high that by our present standards, people would seem to be living in a post-scarcity condition. Never seen any proof to ever prove that that's what would happen, but okay. Now, of course, this technically wouldn't be true, so long as the laws of physics were the same and so long as the human mind created ever more desires, but consider someone in our real world right now who goes from living on the streets in Calcutta, right? He talks about this orphan. Now, when this person goes with his new family to Costco or Sam's Club, he sees abundance. Now, we also, you know, remember I said earlier, well, yeah, if the kid's lucky enough to get adopted, most people are not, you know, um, and 
he's talking about the situation in the United States being so much better and how we have abundance, where we live in a state of abundance. He leaves out the fact that the United States is only in a state of abundance because it's an imperialist nation that through, you know, false flag operations justifies wars to steal resources from everybody else. You know, he fails to look at the fact that the reason why that family that this kid from Calcutta is doing so well is because they're purchasing products from Walmart where the people in question are being paid 70 cents an hour if they're lucky working in subhuman conditions, and that's why we're doing so great. It's not because capitalism is this beautiful place or, you know, and, you know, and that's the thing. We, we have less regulations than most countries, and that's the, you know, you want to go, you want to see what deregulation looks like. You go to the countries that, you know, that Walmart buys its goods from, and the reason they're buying their goods from them is because of the fact there's no regulation. There's no labor regulations over there, so you're free to employ, you know, as I brought up during the last show. I just watched, uh, you know, Michael Moore, one of his films, and I, I know that Michael Moore can in some cases be full of crap, but I'm quoting directly what the owner of Nike said. The owner of Nike said he did not care that 14-year-old girls were working in sweatshops making his shoes. He didn't even say it, like, callously. It was like it just he had convinced himself that it was totally acceptable that that be the state of things. And, you know, that's an example of what happens when there's no regulations. You get child labor, you get subhuman conditions, you know, and that's basically why it's – that's an example of what happens when you deregulate everything. In the United States, we have a minimum wage. We do have some regulations, and, yes, that means the jobs are leaving. But the people at the top want the cheapest possible labor, and they say they justify this just like they do all the time. We want to keep our company competitive. That's their solution. So keeping our company competitive means that whomever sets the bar the lowest is going to determine what everybody else has to follow if they want to be, quote, unquote, competitive. Well, that means if I'm, say, Reebok, and I want to compete with Nike, then I have no choice but to go to third world countries and pay somebody 70 cents an hour to make my shoes. That's what that means. You know, and it's so inhuman. You know, he's pointing out, he's basically using examples like modern America. Modern America is an example of capitalism that is somewhat corrupted from the free market, obviously, but for the most part, we keep deregulating things, and the more we deregulate them, the more trouble they get to be, especially the media. We deregulated how much one person can own as the media, which is absolutely something that would happen in any kind of anarcho-capitalist system. And what did that result in? It resulted in Rupert Murdoch buying up a huge percentage of the media. And what does that get him? Well, it gets him more authority to pick who the next president of the United States is going to be than any American citizen. You know, that's an example of, like, it's just this this... This view that he has, essentially, of, like, what this kid is going to be going through if he comes to the United States, you know, is going to see a world of abundance. He's failing to look at the externalized costs of what that abundance is. And that means the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, all of the many wars that General Smedley Butler talked about in World is a Racket, that's pre-World War II, okay, that we've engaged in to keep United Fruit, on top of the produce business, they keep our oil companies on top of the oil business. You know, capitalism has a different kind of tyranny, and that's that they just they go to, they do go take things. They just go take it from countries that happen to have a weaker military than them. And before you go on to say, you know, not you, but before would someone would go on to say, well, you know, we have a lot of idealists in our movement. Ayn Rand, the the progenitor of the objectivist movement that so many of the anarcho-capitalists just think is awesome. 
Um, she totally justified the slaughter of the Native Americans so that they could take the land from them. She justified the uh, slaughter of Middle Eastern people so that you could take the land from them. And the idea was, if you're more industrious and you have more money, then you have the right to take whatever you want. That's, I mean, she said if they're, you know, if they're not as productive as you, then you just take it. That's the attitude that prevails at the top of all of this. That's the dark side. It's no better at that point than the dark side of communism or the dark side of socialism. And, you know, what do these systems all have in common? Once again, money. Each time. Now, did you have any comment about, you know, the, his little analogy with the kid from Calcutta who lives with the, the suburban family in America? Well, I think you pretty much covered it as far as why he would hypothetically be able to enjoy that freedom. The only other thing I want to comment on is just he's basically giving a microcosmic example, but it actually kind of argues our point because we have the technology to basically turn the entire planet into, figuratively speaking, a Costco, where every single human being would have access to the same things that he had access to. The only difference is it wouldn't be based on depriving another region of their right to those things. Right. Now, um, we're going to move on. Uh, he says, what I am arguing then is that in a truly free world when we all, where we all respect each other's property, apparently just because, the rise in living standards would be analogous to our hypothetical boy who moves from the streets of Calcutta to the suburbs of Maine, in that fantastic world, give someone a free heart giving someone a free heart surgery might be as cheap as giving someone a piece of gum in our current society. Wow. And he calls us utopians. In such a world really is uh, really in such a world really is technologically possible, or if such a world, we could cut the socialist dreamers some slack. Their fault lies not in their vision, but in their plans for achieving it. Right. Because a system that um, exploits greed and encourages greed as its motivating factor, is absolutely never going to be corrupted again. Right. You know, we're socialist dreamers, but they're not dreaming. When they suggest that if we just get everybody to respect each other's property rights, then everything will be fine. You know, it just... <sighs> I, I've, I've done this before. It's just, it, it astounds me that this article found its way into the Mises. No, it doesn't astound me. What astounds me is that this guy wrote this article and he didn't really study the Venus Project. And we're going to get into that as we go further. Now, um, do you have anything else before I continue? No, continue. Now, in the next uh, part of it, he says, did World War II disprove the existence of scarcity? He takes a quote from the Venus Project website out of context. And we're going to get into that here. The website gives an odd historical illustration of its principles. And he, he quotes this from the Venus Project website. A resource-based economy would, util would utilizing existing resources from the land and sea, physical equipment, industrial plants, etc., to enhance the lives of the total population. An economy based on resources rather than money, we could easily produce all of the necessities of life and produce and um, provide a high standard of living for all. Considering the following example, at the beginning of World War II, the U.S. had a mere 600 or so first-class fighting aircraft. We rapidly overcame the short supply by turning out more than 90,000 planes a year. The question at the start of World War II was, do we have enough funds to produce the required implements of war? The answer was no. We did not have enough money, nor did we have enough gold, but we did have more than enough resources. It was the available resources that enabled the U.S. to achieve the high production and efficiency required to win the war. Unfortunately, this is, the, this is only considered in times of war. That's the end of the Venus Project quote. He says, 
Let's think about what the writers mean by saying the United States at the start of World War II did not have enough money to pay for the war effort. Presumably, they mean the American public would never have consented to the explicit taxation and government borrowing that would have been necessary for Uncle Sam to persuade resource owners to voluntarily hand over their items to the government. So what did the federal government do to overcome this lack of money? Why it simply forced American citizens to scale back their own consumption in order to free up scarce resources and redirect them into war production. Specifically, the Federal Reserve created money out of thin air to lend to the government. At the same time, the government physically threatened anyone who dared to raise prices above the permissible limits. The result was that the, fra was that the, fraction, of, the fraction of total output going to the private sector drastically fell during the war years. Now, I'm going to go, well, he's got a little more here. Before leaving this section, I should point out that the above chart, misleadingly, he, there's a chart here that gives the impression that total output went up a bit during the war years. Yet, as Bob Higgs points out, this is a statistical artifact of massive government, government expenditures coupled with price controls. Simply put, the Fed and banking systems flooded the economy with new money, raising the numerator, which, while the government made it illegal for merchants to raise prices, thus holding down the de denominator. Therefore, real GDP figures show a huge burst during the war years, but these numbers are meaningless. Contrary to the claims of the RBE website, World War II did not illustrate the productive powers of mankind. On the contrary, it showed how incredibly wasteful and monstrous human affairs can become when the property rights are systematically violated. He misses the point entirely. What Jacques Fresco was talking about was that this is an example of what happens when you obviously have decided to look past what you can spend on something and instead focus on just making what you need in order to do what you need as far as mankind is concerned. Now, he brings up that the government forced people to settle for less. Obviously, that's not going to happen in what we're suggesting because the kind of production we're talking about is going to be to create abundance. We're not going to need to worry about people raising prices because the kind of efforts that we put into making these aircraft, you know, or the Manhattan Project is another example, you know, um, will instead be used on making it so that people have to work less and have things provided for them. You don't declare war on, on the Nazi Germany. This is a war declared on anything that makes it difficult for human beings to survive. Exactly. And, they, and they get immediate payback from that in the form of, well, we put together the resources of our community and we built a power grid that runs on renewable energy. Now I don't have an electric bill and I don't have a gas bill um, because we've designed our structures so that they can use electricity for that as well. You know, it's not like it's not the same thing. It's like what we have here is. Does anybody have anything to show for of all the aircraft we built during World War II? Obviously not. And instead, we're talking about a system wherein that production would be used to create self-sustaining systems that would replace the need for money. At that point, you know, it's it's not even. He's comparing like apples and oranges. So one way or the other, whether he you know whether, one way or the other, it was possible to achieve that much production. Did it have to be done through the Fed? Did it have to be done through money in the money system? Yes, it did. That, that's the point. We don't want to have a money system. We want to invest in things that, you know, basically in, into projects that make it so that we don't need money anymore and we don't need to be worried about being provided for. When that is your goal, the rest of the stuff just falls into place. Now, go ahead, Brandy. Yeah, that's basically the whole section there with the charts and everything, it, it definitely just misses the point. It's almost as if it just went completely over his head. And I don't know that he did that intentionally, but the example that was given on the Venus Project website was 
not to demonstrate or even to defend the purpose for which the production capabilities were actually utilized. It's obvious that in that case, in that scenario, the resources were used wastefully, but that doesn't mean that the alternative is just to respect everybody's property rights, and then that will fix the problem. The point is to show that we have the capabilities to make both war and private property irrelevant in the first place. Right. So it was just a demonstration of we physically have these items. We physically have the machinery. We have the human capabilities. We could have used our efforts for this. Instead, regardless of the reason, which is what he's trying to dissect, regardless of the cause and regardless of the reason why, because of the government inter, you know, interference, et cetera, that's beside the point of what they're saying. They're saying that without those motivations, without those incentives, if we were to work together, we'd have the materials and the manpower necessary to develop a completely different economic system and utilize our resources effectively. Yep, that's a good answer. Um, I guess we'll go ahead and move on from here. Uh, ignoring the lessons of the calculation debate, our writers offer a little explanation of where this newfound abundance would co will come from, but they do say this. Well, I'm going to take one moment to point out that there's plenty of explanation. If he had bothered to read the rest of the information on the website, or actually done more complete research, he would understand. But, okay. in, but instead, he just leaves that open as if we hadn't talked about it to try to basically point a finger at us to say we're not competent because we had never thought about where that abundance would come from. Well, Jacques Fresco's been doing this for 94 years. I think he knows what he's talking about. Now, he quotes the Venus Project website, as we outgrow the need for professions based on a monetary system, for instance, lawyers, bankers, insurance agents, Marketing and advertising personnel, salespersons, and stockbrokers, a considerable amount of waste will be eliminated. Now, goes back to his article, this view demonstrates either that the writers have never heard of the socialist calculation debate or that they failed to learn its lessons. Ludwig von Mises shows that the money piece prices are not arbitrary. It really means something when a firm suffers a loss. Specifically, when a firm loses money, it means the customers are not willing to pay as much for the finished product or services the firm had to spend acquiring inputs. Loosely speaking, then, a firm that loses money is one that takes valuable resources and turns them into something that society values less. Mises put his finger, I know, Mises put his finger in the fundamental problem with socialism. If the state owns all the resources, then there could be no market prices for the tractors, kilowatt hours, hours barrels of oil, and other things necessary for production. Looking at the various productive enterprises in the operation in a moment, the central planners won't have a common denominator for all of the different combinations of inputs going into each one. The planners won't know if a particular car factory makes sense because they will have they will just have an enormous stream of data describing the various resources going into the factory and the amount of finished cars coming out of the factory. These brute facts alone don't tell the planners if they are efficiently using the resources being consumed in the factory. This is another one of those, well, it didn't work for socialists, so therefore it doesn't work for us arguments, but I'm going to continue. Returning to the quotation above, our RBE writers don't realize that their world would still require the service of bankers, insurance agents. Actually, you know what? I'm going to pause at this last point before we get into this next paragraph because I've got a whole other spiel to go on to. But um, you go ahead and go first this time, and then I'll make my comment about what we've read so far. Well, I was actually just going to let you go ahead on that part because i am okay. got something to say when we get a little bit further ahead. Sure. Okay. I already went over the fact that we do offer explanation about where the newfound abundance would go. Right. 
Okay, this view demonstrates either that the writers have never heard of the socialist calculation debate or that they failed to learn its lessons. No, Jacques Fresco has heard of the socialist calculation debate, and we have learned our lessons from it. It's also why we're not socialists. Um, one of the major things about socialism and communism in practice that most people tend to think about is that the infrastructure for most communist and socialist structure um, and, and socialist countries was the same as it was in most capitalist countries. They still have the same approach to things. We build a factory, the factory needs workers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We're trying to eliminate as much of that as possible, okay? And considering the fact that the capitalists are already closing down plants and, you know, downsizing and automating things, your proof is right there. You know, a lot of the socialist calculation debate stuff, a lot of pretty much, well, anything that Ludwig von Mises ever says, is outdated. It doesn't compare to the actual capabilities of technology now. Now, um, he says money prices are not arbitrary. It really means something when a firm suffers a loss. Yeah, it does. And a company in the, in the monetary system, in a, in a capitalist system, will go out of its way to make sure that it does not make a loss no matter what, including, for example, dumping aspirin or some, uh, whatever it was, bear company dumping that you know, thing, the zeitgeist addendum, like, you know, listen to the news, that company dumping that, those drugs in Europe that were infected with the AIDS virus. You know, yeah, they'll do anything they can to avoid the suffering a loss. That's exactly the name of the game when you have a situation where profit is the motivator. This is not a good thing. This is actually a bad thing. And, yes, it might make things productive, but it does not in any way care about anything other than those losses. It, you know, and there are other systems that they say will be put in place. They say that the consumers will fix things like what I'm talking about. Oh, well, then nobody will buy bear aspirin ever again. Well, that news report went out and their company did not go under, and, yeah, it probably solved a couple of problems in that people like maybe you or me might have been well, well enough to go ahead and stop doing business with Bear. It doesn't change the fact, however, that for the vast majority of the consumers are not that educated to it and that we create a system wherein advertising goes beyond just showing people that you have a good product. It goes into your mind. There is so much brainwashing used in, in uh, advertising you know, also, you know, when they talk about waste, that was actually something that he points out, how incredibly wasteful and monstrous human affairs can be when, you know, property rights are systematically violated or whatever. Um, there is so much waste put into products that people don't need. Because remember, once again, you know, he keeps talking about a firm, you know, suffers a loss. Well, these firms are interested in making money. They're not interested in being productive as far as anything that actually benefits mankind. They're interested in making their money. If that can benefit mankind, then great. But if you can convince somebody, you know, like they had Edward Bernays help, you know, convince women that they needed to be smoking, that they need your product, then they'll be more than happy to sell you something that's killing you if you're willing to buy it. The market has no, like, you know, a free market particularly has no regulations whatsoever to stop any of that. You know, actually, that's an excellent example. I just saw this really disgusting article today about this two-year-old child who lives in a, another country where there's no regulations about who's allowed to smoke. So you this two-year-old child who was addicted to cigarettes. He was smoking like 60 cigarettes a day. You know, did anybody, you know, did any consumer action group get together and do anything about that kid? No, they didn't. It ended up, you know, there were some activists who did something about it. But I guarantee you cigarettes are still being sold in that country. You know, that's, and I guarantee you the company in question didn't care that that, you know, that that kid's parents were buying him 60 cigarettes a day either. The problem is, is that in those countries, 
people don't really know a lot, a lot about the uh, damaging effects of smoking, but still, it, it's just another example of how this system can just turn in on itself and create really dangerous circumstances. Now, um, he says that, you know, once again, Mises put his finger on the fundamental problems with socialism. That's okay, so did we. If the state owns all the resources, then there could be no market prices for the tractors, kilowatt hours, barrels of oil, and other things necessary for production. Well, we don't really want there to be a state, but let's, let's get beyond that, okay? You're right. There can be no uh, market prices for tractors. There can also be no inflated prices for tractors. Uh, there could also be no uh, basically denying people of the energy that they need to survive based on whether or not they have the purchasing power. Um, there could also, you know, there's so many other things that go along with it. You know, um, the plan obsolescence issue, the, you know, other aspects that go away when resources are no longer being used to try to see if you can get an advantage over other people. When instead the resources are being used to try to make sure that you've given advantage to all people equally and with the goal of everybody having a high quality of living, that's, that's where we're at, okay? You know, once again, socialist com countries, and I said this before, you generally use the same infrastructure plans that we did. And that's in, you know, meaning we, meaning the capitalist country in the United States. So it, it's, in our society, what we're proposing is a completely different approach to infrastructure, production, labor. All of that is completely done differently. It's not just a matter of we're just going to grab everybody's stuff and divide it into, you know, into equal portions. It's a matter of finding a way to make sure that everybody has exactly what they need. And, you know, we're going to get into this later in the article where we talk about how there's so much waste that goes into producing, you know, things for the sake of competing against one another when we could just have one factory that makes the best televisions possible. You know, those are all examples of things that um, are not taken into account here. But now talks about central planners, no common denominator for all different combinations of inputs going into each one. The planners won't know if a particular car factor makes sense. Now, the issue of planning or uh, determining the price, quote unquote, you know, the, when you go in, you know, when you're the manager of a, of a big business, for example, like, or more to the point, you're a manager of a business that's part of a larger corporation, your job is to make a note of inventory, how much has been coming out, and then order what you need. And that's how we think that all of this stuff should be handled. You know, if, if this many cars are being used and one of them is broken down and we can't fix it, which isn't going to happen very often in a world with, you know, where things are actually designed to last, then we order another one. Now, a lot of this in order for it to, you know, some of the factors that they're going to say, well, that doesn't work, you know, because people are going to want 30 cars or whatever other nonsense straw man they always create, um, is that when you get rid of social stratification, when you get rid of advertising that tells you that you need this car to be secure or to be a good person or to be a successful or prosperous person, you get rid of all that brainwashing bullshit, then you're going to have people who are going to drive a car because it's a vehicle. You're going to design a city infrastructure where you don't even really need one very much, so therefore the need for everybody to have one goes down, not because we're going to take them all away from everybody, but because in a system where the city is designed, you know, with um, mass transit designed into the city rather than just sort of haphazardly, you know, added after the city's already built, 
then the need for a vehicle goes down. This is an example of how pretty much all of these commodities would go down if we used intelligent design and effectively managed resources. There's so much more to it than just what we've been doing in the past. What communist countries and socialist countries have done did not really use a lot of the scientific method. They just kind of made everybody equal, sort of, not that that ever worked, and gave everybody an equal portion of things rather than scientifically approaching how to make it so that you need as little resources as possible to take care of as many people. So, now, um, that was uh, all I had to say on that part. Did you have anything to say about that before I continue to this next paragraph in this section? No, that was pretty much it. Okay. Returning to the quotation above, our RVE writers don't realize that their world would still require the services of bankers, insurance agents, and advertising personnel. And whether um, – I have a hard time with that point – but whether conducted at the individual level or by society through a group of representatives, people would still need to decide how much of their resources to save and how much to invest in various enterprises. That's okay, but that doesn't make you a banker an advertiser or an insurance agent. I don't know what they're talking about, but they would also need to decide how to deal with the possibility that key workers could drop dead of a heart attack of setting their production plans. Okay, so then somebody else just takes up the job, but we're trying to eliminate as much work as possible, so I guess I don't see how one guy dying is just going to kill everybody when we're talking about reducing the workday to maybe as little as 20 hours a week, you know, if not less. And it's most of the jobs that are going to be so critical, I, I just don't see that happening. Key workers drop dead of a heart attack. Okay. Furthermore, even in the RBE utopia, there would still be constant product innovation. Yeah. Okay. Citizens would need to be informed of new options so that production decisions could change to reflect the public's desires. Thus, we see that even the RBE would require some form of bankers, advertisers, etc. I haven't seen anything in what he said that tells me that I need bankers at all, because there's no money, and we don't need advertisers. It's not the same job. Anybody who's ever gone to school for advertising will tell you this. Advertisement is a job that the reason it is so complicated and requires expertise now is because the job is to try to convince people to buy something even if they don't need it. The job is to convince people to buy something, even if it's flawed. That's what a jo the job of advertisers are now. Those jobs aren't even necessary. You just print out, this is the schematics, and then they can go look at it. They, you know, if somebody has a need, then they'll go look at the new products. If they don't, then they won't. I, just, I don't see that he's saying, I mean, it, just, it seems like he's just kind of trying to debunk a point weekly just to leave it there, I, I don't, but I don't really see anything he's made there that, that made any sense to me. Did, does it make any sense to you? I mean, do you, do you see what I'm talking about? I see exactly what you're talking about. Okay. Now, um, competition as a discovery procedure. Our writers overlook one of the key insights of Friedrich Hayek when they claim, this is from the Venus Project, considerable amounts of energy would also be saved by eliminating the duplication of competitive projects, project, uh, products such as tools, eating utensils, pots, pans, and vacuum cleaners, Choice is good, but instead of hundreds of different manufacturing plants and all the paperwork and personnel required to turn out similar products, only a few of the highest quality would need to be served the entire population. Our only shortage is the lack of creative thought and intelligence in ourselves and our elected leaders to solve these problems. At the end of the Venus Project quote, he says, yet as Hayek pointed out decades ago, it is not a given fact that uh, what the highest quality products are, 
nor how to create them in the most economical way. How can I? I'll finish this sentence. Our society currently enjoys very high-quality tools, eating utensils, pots, etc., precisely because entrepreneurs are in constant rivalry with each other, striving to steal customer ways, customers away from each other through offering better products at lower prices. I think it's a very naive um, statement. Because it is. Because that's not what's going on at all. Yes, people are trying to steal customers away from each other, but that's not done just by saying by having a better product. That's silly. It hasn't been like that in years. And it's not just going to suddenly be like that because we all decide to respect each other's property rights either. This is another reason why well, – go ahead. I was just going to say, and are we completely ignoring the fact that these companies have to consider a product that they can afford to make, number one? They're not actually making the highest quality product available at all, period. They're making a product that they can afford to make, that they can afford to sell, that people can afford to buy, and then one that's not going to last for 50 years because, obviously, they need to have repeat business. Mm. So I don't know where all of that falls into this paragraph. Right. I. It seems to me that this person, you know, and all him telling us that we don't have any understanding of economics, he doesn't have any understanding of our theories. And this is – it bothers me when people do stuff like this because it's, it's obvious that he felt threatened when he wrote the article because he met this guy – you know, he thought everything was going great until somebody was not a capitalist, and then he felt the need to go after it. But he, he obviously hasn't really studied it. Studied it. Um, anyway, so uh, he says precisely, we, we enjoy high quality this and that because precisely because entrepreneurs are in constant rivalry with each other, striving to steal customers away, offering better products. Right. Um, Walmart does not seek to give quality products. It seeks to give the least amount of quality that it can get away with so that it can offer a price, in some cases taking a loss to make sure that it can put other people out of business. Okay? Um, the, the monetary system, the only thing that is guaranteed is that somebody will profit. It, it's not guaranteed, it does not guarantee quality at all. And it certainly does not guarantee that if there is a quality item that you're going to be able to afford it. In fact, it probably guarantees that you're not going to be able to afford it, depending on what income bracket that you're in. Exactly. The only reason that I had to look around for what television I wanted was not because of the fact that I was looking to see what I wanted. It was because I was looking to see what I could afford. You could afford. Right. And even the most expensive television that was there was probably still a piece of crap in comparison to what it could have been. But when you take into account, I mean, this is not, you know, planned obsolescence is not a myth, folks. You look at the way the cars are designed now as opposed to the way they were designed before. Most of the reason why you see all these muscle cars and you know, a lot of these old cars, as long as you take care of them, they still run. And it's because they don't have a, you know, they don't have a bunch of redundant, stupid systems that are basically designed to fail, that are designed to keep you know, to line the pockets of the service industry. You know, these are all examples of how, you know, as, as these things progress, yes, they are competing against one another. They're competing to see which one of them will be the best at bullshitting their customers into buying their stuff. That's it. It has nothing to do with having a better quality product than anybody else. Not in the not in the brass tacks. In some cases, yes. I mean, you can't just totally put out trash all the time. But if your advertising skills, particularly your you know your brainwashing psychological advertising skills, are good enough, and if your um, you know your ability to eliminate competition is good enough which supposedly can't happen in a free market, but 
um, you know, then then you're going to have control over what your you know what the consumers are going to buy anyway. And I don't think that it's it, it basically what it comes down to is I think that he the, the the free market system believes that competition creates quality and it creates low prices. And I agree that that can happen to some degree. The problem is is that that goes both ways. Uh, that means that if you're a good businessman, you're inclined to eliminate competition as fast as possible through whatever means you have available to you. And eliminating the government wouldn't just suddenly end that. Um, so yeah, in any case, I think we've I've covered this point anyway. Did you have anything more to say? Um, just one point, really, is that we definitely covered that this is not necessarily the case, but I think equally as important is the fact that describing how competition can, in many cases, drive companies to improve their products and such doesn't negate the idea that, therefore, if we cooperate, products won't be at quality. The only way we can have quality products is if we compete against each other to steal business. If we put our minds together, then everything will suck. <laughs> Which is so silly. You know, when you think about that, it's, it's the fact that there are any flaws in anything that we make, at least given the knowledge that we have from moment to moment, is because of the fact that if you make a product that people don't ever have to replace, then they don't have to have to come back and buy it again. That, that's the perfect example of why the monetary system is by no means a road to achieving quality, because quality is not, at least as far as staying, you know, like, you know. And longevity, right. Yeah, longevity, it is not profitable. It's not profitable to build cars that don't break down. You know, I mean, they were terrified of DeLorean because he had the novel concept of, well, rather than building our cars out of something that rusts, maybe we should build them out of something that doesn't rust. Oh, what a novel concept. Yeah, we can't, we got to get rid of that guy. Yeah, get him the hell out of here, man. We can't have anybody doing that, you know. We're trying to appeal to vanity here. If cars don't rust, then people won't feel the need to replace them. Right. That's. <laughs> and I want to I want to make a point on that too because I think that scares some people when they sort of skim the material and don't really look into how products would be designed and how open source design really works. And they say, oh well, who wants the same car for 50 years, or who wants the same toaster for 50 years, and who wants something that's never upgraded? This is you're basically just taking away innovation. Nothing's ever going to be improved if it lasts forever. And I'm thinking, okay, first of all, this is a whole nother show, but we're not going to get into the fact that there's manufactured demand and we have commercials and everything that cause people to desire something even when the one they have is perfectly fine and good. But when we're talking about a resource-based economy on this scale, what we're looking at, things are going to be updated all the time, and they're going to be easily updated, easily upgraded you know, easily recycled. So it's not, for one, if you were stuck with the same item for 50 years, if it was perfectly functional and there was nothing wrong with it, you wouldn't mind because you wouldn't have a commercial every five minutes showing you something that was way cooler. But the point is, is that if it serves its function, and even if there is some kind of an update or an improvement on safety features or something like that, you'd be able to go and get that free of charge, obviously. And it's not – I think people are thinking that everything is going to be standardized and everyone will have the same thing of everything in the same color for a million years and you can never have anything different. Well, we don't actually – we don't – because nothing's really illegal. If you want to innovate and make your own item, nobody's going to stop you. Right. The issue is, is that we're not going to let you, you know, grab large quantities of resources, you know, and use them for yourself. But if you, like, say – 
you know, maybe you, like, want to make your car a little different. Like, you've decided that you want to really get into that. You want to, uh, maybe you want to change the color, or maybe you want to change the overall design, or the fenders, or maybe you just have a, a an interest in reconstructing uh, an older style of car. Nobody's going to stop you from doing that. You know, but it's, as far as taking care of society as a whole, you know, that's it. That's a different matter. You know, that's that's all about logic and applying, you know, uh, the, the supply, method. the scientific method, you know, to go along with that. You know, to determine, you know, it's like he said that, you know, as, as Hayek pointed out decades ago, it, it, decades ago, you know, when technology was way different than it is now, it is not a given fact that what the highest quality products are. No, it is. it is a given fact. You can, in fact, prove what the highest quality product is. You use the scientific method, you test the products against each other, and you go from there. The only reason there is any variable to this is because of the fact that... Um, Not everybody can afford the highest quality. Well, no. I mean, the only reason there's a variable as to what people perceive to be the highest oh, wow. quality mm-hmm. is because of, you know, bullshit things, you know, mucking up the system, like, you know, like I said earlier, advertisements, um, uh, propaganda, corporate warfare, you know, the determination of what's the better product. Fashion is an excellent example of that. Um, When you look at fashion, you know, you end up buying a pair of jeans. You know, I always use this example because it's one of the most silly. I wore Wrangler jeans when I was a kid. They had a little Wrangler symbol on them. It was maybe one inch by one inch. But the kids who were wearing guest jeans, you know, same jeans, you know, well, they had a higher quality product. (laughs) You know, somehow, even though it's the same damn pair of jeans, it just had a triangle with a question mark on it, and so therefore it was, quote unquote, a better quality product. It also was, you know, like 30 or $40 more expensive, too. So, um, you know, keeping all those things in mind, you know, it's just, it's, it is possible to prove what the best quality is. It, it's just through testing and determining what, you know, that quality is. It's, it's that simple. You compare, well, is this car better than that car? What are their performances? Uh, what's the longevity? How often do they break down? Are there, you know, it, those are all things that can be proven using tests and scientific methods. And if you have some frame of reference, that's the other thing, too. Is the frame of reference shouldn't be, well, it's like you said, on, you guys covered on the last show, the frame of reference shouldn't be opinion. It should be the scientific method, what resources we have available on the planet, things like that. So if you have a frame of reference, then you can you can actually say, you can calculate quality and say, well, this one uses less resources and it's more productive this way. Or this one uses less energy, but it produces the same amount of, you know, the product or whatever it is that you're using as the other item. So you can actually use measurements and compare when you have a relevant frame of reference. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um I guess to go over here, the conclusion, his conclusion anyway, our present world is manifestly unjust. In addition to wars and genocides, there are also pockets of shocking poverty that could be quickly eradicated if only the right social institutions were in place. Those championing the resource-based economy recoil in horror from our present world, and understandably so, if because they have obviously not studied Austrian economics, they have misdiagnosed the problem. But because we haven't decided, you know, just, um, studied their off the cuff, or I don't want to say off the cuff, they're already considered to be controversial economics. That's why we don't understand what's going on. So as we haven't studied their system, that's why we've misdiagnosed the problem. Even though mainstream economists don't agree with 
Austrian economics anyway. But, um, in fact, one of the things that I brought this up on a previous show, one of the major problems with Austrian economics, as listed by Main Street economists, is because of the fact that Austrian, uh, Austrian economists do not believe in using scientific data to determine how to re, you know, distribute resources. They feel that the market is just so random, you can't possibly ever take care of it, so just, therefore, just let it go do its thing completely, and everybody will be okay, you know, in that money utopia that he described earlier that just doesn't make any sense to me. But in any case, um, he goes on to say, abolishing money will not solve the world's problems because money is an indispensable tool to aid in economic calculation and corruption. Rather, the way to raise the material standard of living around the world is to foster universal respect for property rights, which we've already disclosed the fact that within any monetary system, and that's the end of his statement, any, in any monetary system wherein people can and will find ways to exploit property and to take it from people, I mean, the bailout situation is an excellent example of that. You know, they got to keep their money and, like, take their houses away from all those people. You know, it's... <laughs> Property rights and respecting them, you know, I'm all for that to some degree, but that doesn't solve anything. Okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to respect the property rights of the, you know, the, the kid who's dying of dysentery in a third world country. Why shouldn't I? He doesn't have anything, you know. <laughs> okay, well, it's fine. He doesn't have anything I want, you know, and it just does not – the capitalist system, because in order to expand, it requires, you know, taking resources from people is what creates all of these wars in the first place. All of these illegal, stupid wars that they get into, you know, are in one way or another justified and put together by capitalists. You just don't get to see it. It's one of the more insidious things about the capitalist fascism that happens is that it's not as obvious because you have it, you know, like whereas the fascism in a, in a socialist country, if it has fascist system, or a communist country, if it has a fascist system, it's obvious. The fascism in our system is totally under the radar. You don't even get to see it because you're basically kept, you know, busy with, with entertainment and various advertising and, you know, consumerism keeps you busy so you don't realize that people at the top are running everything. And then they, that allows them to do things like convince you, we really need to go to Afghanistan to, to free their people, I mean, take their oil, <laughs> you know. That's why you end up in situations like that. And it's, it, that's basically, you know, it's no better – in us invading Afghanistan or Iraq was no better than the Soviet Union invading Afghanistan for very similar reasons, I might add, you know. And so that was basically my last statement on that. So did you have anything further? Um, not so much on that point necessarily, but I do think, as you pointed out earlier, that unfortunately the entire point of this article seems to be that, you know, we've misdiagnosed the problem. And ironically, it's diagnosed as we need to respect everybody's property rights. That's exactly how the article ends. And it still leaves us – it does link to that other article, which I looked over, but it still doesn't really answer the question as to how we're supposed to accomplish that. Right. That's actually a very good point I was thinking about bringing up myself, um, was the fact that um, he doesn't talk about how we're going to achieve that which is, you know, we could, we could then go on to say, well, it's obvious this person doesn't have an understanding of how um, behavior, you know, the behavior that causes you to disrespect property rights is created by the same system that he's advocating. You know, any system wherein you can have somebody who's so desperate that they're going to go get a gun and rob somebody else because they have no choice if they want to survive, 
is not going to foster anybody, you know, respecting anyone's property rights. Any system that has situations like that, wherein, you know, some groups of people can afford more soldiers than others, is not going to foster a circumstance wherein those people are not going to be tempted to go and take those resources from someone else, just as the United States. You know, when we go invade other countries because we want their stuff, it's the same thing. You know, and it doesn't go away. In fact, it's caused because we don't, go, we don't think of the world in a perspective of, all right, we're all here. How can we make this work for everybody? Instead, we are like, well, we're all here. All right, guys, line up. Got your marks. Get set. Go. Oh. <laughs> you know, that's the solution. Let's all just run. You know, it's, it's like a shopping spree, only the competition is, it's like, like there's ten people on the same shopping spree, and they're all running off to go fight to get the stuff before everybody else does. You know, that's that, rather than just let's uh, make a big enough store so that everybody who lives locally can have whatever they need and leave it at that. So I think uh, unless you had something else you wanted to address, that's pretty much it. Yeah, that, that pretty much covers the article. Excellent. All right. Well, um, I actually have some things I have to do this evening, so I'm going to have to actually end the show. But uh, thank you once again, Brandy, for coming on. And uh, not a problem. I look forward to the the future when you can you know be a more permanent co-host on V Radio. Definitely. Thank you everybody for tuning in to V Radio. Please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. Check out the archives of this show and many others. Um, we don't just talk about capitalism and economics. Even if you happen to be a libertarian economist kind of person, you can still enjoy a lot of my other programming. So um, please feel free to check out my website. And uh, thanks again, Brandy, for being on. It's always an honor. Thank you. Take care. And I'll leave you guys with some words from Jock Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.